This is Fully Vested, a weekly podcast where Jason Rowley and Graham Peck discuss technology and venture capital investing. This week, we discuss the growing number of companies and funds that are offering venture debt as another funding strategy for high-growth companies and startups. The show was recorded on February 10th. You can learn more at fullyvested.co. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, Critical Podcast Supply 1, microphone. Critical Podcast Supply 2, a fresh can of Yingling. <laughs> uh, well, I hope we're recording now. We are, yeah, yeah. This is the show. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my goodness. Uh, uh, Graham, you know what I'm doing right now? No, I don't. What are you doing right now? I know what you're doing right now. You're hitting mute. Yeah, listeners, I'm 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 narrating for you what Graham's doing. Graham is uh, engaging in a lot of jiggery pokery with his uh, microphone. Uh, is m- manipulating the uh, the little foamy. Um... Graham, you got a you got a car alarm in the background? No, there's a train going by where I am, and I unmuted. Good oh boy. lord. Is- well, what's in the show's in the show. <laughs> okay. Listeners, uh Jason, we can hear the the L tracks when Jason's at home. Yeah, it's true. Uh, often. Uh well, uh you can hear the uh freight train or whatever just went by uh where I'm recording today. Uh tonight. It's so the sound there of, you go. Uh, it's the sound of commerce at work, right? Which is not something you can say about SoftBank, apparently. <laughs> Graham, spoilers. Okay. Ooh. Well, I guess I I got to sell our special content somehow. Apparently, spoilers. Okay, uh, well, Graham, I have. Uh, I, I'm. I'm. I'm having fun today. Uh, can I tell you why? Good. What's that? Oh my God, Graham, you're 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 recumbent well, as all get out. Look at you. You look so comfortable. Oh. Okay. Now. Now. Okay. Right. Now, now this is proper proper podcasting posture. <laughs> well, why? Uh, why are you having fun, Jason? Um. Well, first off, Graham, as you know, I'm always having fun. Second of all, um, today is the day that um, I'm happy to report that uh, we've finalized all of the uh, startup row selections and have gotten, well, that was finalized a while ago, but we got our uh, final confirmation today on our uh, on all the participants at uh, in in Startup Row, the little volunteer thing that I do with the Python Software Foundation, which technically, oh, congratulations. Graham, I'm bearing the lead because that's probably something I should have mentioned when we introduced ourselves. Graham, we should probably introduce ourselves. Yeah, we haven't introduced ourselves. No, we've not. Uh, Graham, who are you? My name is Graham Peck. I'm a venture partner with a great Midwestern-based VC called Cultivation Capital. We invest in early stage... Um, ag tech, life sciences, and uh, software technology businesses. I specifically work on our software technology team with a group of really phenomenal partners. Uh, And in addition to that, I uh, also help companies, uh, large and small, startup and not, to build their technology teams by working with um, some dedicated staffing resources, primarily in Eastern Europe uh, at a company called Brightgrove. Uh, that's, uh, I think that's mostly me professionally. Nice. Jason, who, uh, who are you? Graham, I, um, I ask myself that on the regular. I think that's also a joke mm-hmm. I've used before. Yeah, it probably is. Gosh darn it. Are we going to get off on some existential bent now? No, 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 I'm going on holiday. Anyways, hey everybody, my name is Jason. Um, I am a, uh, venture capital and data 
journalist slash writer on the internet person guy for uh, Crunchbase News. And when I'm not doing that, as I uh, buried the lead earlier, uh, as an, on a volunteer basis, I work with the Python Software Foundation, helping to give away free booth space at PyCon US to early stage companies that use Python in new and interesting ways. And uh, yeah, we were, we're given eight companies free booth space at PyCon this year. Very excited. That's so exciting. I want yeah. to learn more about which ones were chosen. Well, I was, uh, that'll be for later. I, I, I was lucky enough to be a judge of this year's uh, entrance, so I'm excited to see whether uh, my scoring rubric rubric lines up with uh, with uh, anyone else's. Well, there was eight people on the selection committee, myself included, and oh, Graham and you included too. Um, and uh, I've always I'm I'm debating whether or not I should share people's scores, not with the companies, although, you know, I'm sure nobody would necessarily, you know, mind um, on that front. But uh, importantly, sharing it with the other judges. I think that could be kind of neat. Oh, I'd, uh, I'd pay extra for that. <laughs> for the record, everybody, this is a volunteer. This is, I do this on a volunteer basis. There's, there's, there's no, no, no money involved um, uh, that way. So um, wink, wink. No, in fact, no wink, wink. Not at all. <laughs> wink, wink. I, 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 <laughs> um uh no this is a, it's a it's a not non-profit generating endeavor both for myself and um well the PSF gets something out of it uh they get uh it's it's potential for future sponsors which is nice um let's see what else what else do we have any other disclaimers to go for at the beginning oh yeah Graham as you know and listeners as you know Graham and I are not financial advisors. We're not lawyers. We don't play them on the internet. Please, if you are going to make an investment or take an investment, please talk with you know your relevant and uh, state certified <laughs> uh, professionals who can uh, help you with that stuff. Um, we're just a couple of guys talking about stuff on the internet. Uh, and then also on that, uh, on also, uh, man, words are hard, Graham. Also on that note. Uh, Graham and I are doing this, uh, as you know, independently, we're friends. Uh, the thoughts that we express here, uh, do not necessarily reflect those of our, uh, employers, uh, who, who may or may not know that we actually record this podcast. Now that I've dug, dug us into a big hole, Graham, do you want to, uh, do you want to get into what we're talking about? So I think, uh, we should get into what we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. Um, so for 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 today's show, we are going to be discussing two sort of separate but sort of related articles. Um, one by a uh, gentleman named uh, Alex Danko, Danko, Alex D A N C O, um, uh, writes a lot of the things on the internet about the venture capital, uh, and then also uh, on the note of uh, people writing things on the internet about venture capital, we got an article from John Thornhill. Uh, who published in the Financial Times with an article entitled Venture Capital Investors Should Harpoon More Whales. Um, should be noted, Graham, this does not actually have to do with real whales. Although I thought there was actually really good, uh, you know, kind of uh, calling back to that, uh, that the whaling industry used a very similar funding model to vent the venture ecosystem today. You know, back when like whaling was a theoretically acceptable practice. Yeah. So this is in it's in reference in particular to 
really, really fantastic research done by a Harvard Business School professor named uh, Tom Nichols, uh, who wrote a history of the venture capital industry in America, um, appropriately titled VC in American History. And in it, he traces the origins of the modern venture capital industry, um, well, back to where it sort of all began. And it's a fascinating book. I've made my made the majority of my way through it. Um, and the first chapter concerns the uh, the whaling industry in uh, in New England and the financial relationships that emerged around it. And the reason why. OK, so here's the, the basic scenario is this. As you can imagine, you know, hunting, going out to hunt a whale uh, or multiple whales is both a highly uncertain and highly variable, you know, sort of business prospect, right? Like, there's all sorts of terrible things that can happen, right? You can have a sort of a Moby Dick scenario. Uh, you can uh, have a, uh, a sort of, a, and that's a fictitious thing. You can have a whale ship Essex uh, scenario, which was very real, which resulted in um, basically a, an angry whale sinking a ship and everybody going into a lifeboat and um, ultimately cannibalizing some of their crew members. Um, although that doesn't necessarily happen quite as often these days in uh, in startup land, right, Graham? As long as you don't receive investment from SoftBank. <laughs> oh, God. I think that... Uh, I, th- I think maybe you should call me Ishmael for the rest of this uh, episode. Ah. <sighs> All right, you guys don't listen to our comedy podcast in addition to this one, do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, anyway, so so whaling, it's dangerous, it's risky, terrible things can happen. Uh, but on the alternate, on, on the other hand, um, again, as, as morally odious as we might consider it today, um, if you uh, were very lucky and managed to uh, nab a, uh, an exceptionally large whale, um, you would be... Uh, you as a as a um, as a ship, you know, you'd be set for the whole voyage, right? In the similar way to how venture investors today think about, you know, oh, if we if we invest in one or two, you know, companies that end up becoming these billion dollar unicorn type things, uh, you know, that's through one investment or two invest- investments, you're able to return the entire fund. That's basically the whole idea there. Anyways, um, because the whaling industry was so risky. And it was very relationship driven. Um, it came about, you know, the, a structure sort of emerged wherein um, people, you know, would basically act as agents, brokering a financial relationships between uh, ship captains and um, and investors who wanted to back whaling voyages. Again, because whaling voyages had a very high likelihood of failure, but those that didn't fail. Uh, would result in just absolutely massive success for everybody. It's also in the whaling industry. And by the way, if people are still listening to this, you know, very intrepid listeners. Um, but the uh, 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 also relevant to the whaling industry is um, is is the sort of initial setup. And this is not just in whaling; it's also in in old school shipping as well. Um, the sort of like uh, uh, skin in the game uh, set of incentives that. Uh, are present in modern day startups today, right? Giving crew members a little cut of the uh, carry and stuff like that, um, and uh, and all the rest. 
So, do they call it carry then? Yeah, is that's that where act- the term carry comes from. That is actually where the where the term carried interest comes from. From slightly before the whaling industry, uh, you know, this was back in regular transatlantic shipping. In order to create alignment between the, you know, financial interests that back a voyage and the actual um, executives slash like captain and um, his crew. Um, and unfortunately, they were almost always guys back then. So I'm sorry for using gendered language, but it's uh, historically accurate in this case. Um, you know, in order to align those incentives, you would or the investors in a whaling mission or or in a shipping mission uh, would in turn give a, a ship captain an interest in the uh, goods carried. Interest, interesting. I did not know that. Now you know. Well, Graham, if you read my, uh, if you read the little venture capital dictionary I wrote for Mattermark back in like twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen, you would know. Mm. Mm. Well, <laughs> my reading list gets longer yet again. <laughs> uh, Graham, I feel like we do this podcast mostly as an exercise in me giving you reading homework. Yeah, yeah, it's going pretty well so far. Good. I'm not <laughs> quite caught up. Okay, good. I'm excited about that. Um, okay, so so whaling industry. Uh, the reason why we bring up this article from the Financial Times is that uh, is that the 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 author, uh, Mister uh, Thornhill, uh, is attempting to make a case, and at least in my opinion, quite compellingly, that venture capitalists are um, increasingly growing uh, more risk averse as they seek out more repeatable returns for their limited partners. Because they get more repeatable returns, they're able to raise second and third funds and fourth funds and fifth, you know, et cetera, and on down the line. They're able to raise more money for each fund, which in turn gives them more management fees, gives them more, um, you know, sort of dry powder to deploy into uh, companies. Um, and in theory, gives them, sell, you know, gives them sort of more at-bats and ergo more chances to um, do well. Um across their entire investment portfolio, stuff like that. But, uh, you know, Mr. Thornhill, he's he's making, uh, again, a compelling argument, at least in my opinion, that that model, which is, you know, a relatively new one to emerge, and which we will talk about later when we talk about this, you know, debt and the repeatable business model problem that um, Alex Danko brings up, um, that that this, in fact, sort of disincentivizes the uh, the really big swings um, and and major you know risk taking sort of endeavors that uh, that that really venture capital as it exists uh, you know today or, or certainly at least you know uh, ten years ago before this current cycle you know really blew up uh, that it was really built for which is you know really high risk really high reward uh, sort of wacky weird businesses so. I think it's interesting to think about this, uh, and, and I guess I have mixed feelings on this topic. Okay, um, well, let's talk about them. That's what we're here yeah, for. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess you know, obviously, the venture capital ecosystem is designed to back endeavors that are considered inherently more risky, um, and that's that's I think the point of of the Financial Times article is encouraging venture capitalists to get back of the back to the business of taking more risks. And I think it specifically calls out things like, you know, solving cancer and several other 
you know, bigger, riskier endeavors that'll be really financially lucrative when they happen. Um, and, and seems to call a lot of people in our industry, uh, you know, out for just backing businesses that have a more now kind of crossing between the two articles have a more um, financial instrument, uh, especially a debt backed financial instrument like return profile. Um, it's not that I don't see that, but I think that I guess in defense of, at least in slight defense of our industry, I think that if you get into businesses as early as even cultivation does and the team that I participate on, I won't speak for anyone else, I think we're still taking a lot of risk. Um, Certainly, I think you could go find more risky businesses and certainly I think you could have an approach that naturally lends itself to more risky businesses um, than we do. But I think in general, we're still taking a lot more risk than investing in, for example, the S&P 500. Uh, and just to clarify for our for our listeners, uh, we invest at what we call a late seed or an early Series A stage. Um, and the way we define that in terms of traction of those businesses, we are typically investing in B2B software technology companies. Um, and generally, we are investing in exactly the spaces that these articles are kind of talking about of SaaS or other recurrent or predict or highly predictable revenue businesses. And generally, we find or we define our sweet spot as around a million dollars a year in ARR or annually recurrent revenue if looked at on a run rate basis. Um, I won't go too much further into the details of what we're looking for, um, uh, you know, in a, in a setting as public as this, but uh, I think it's okay to say everything that I've said thus far. That's, that's kind of where we are, but we think that there's still a fair amount of risk, even though that business has more than likely many customers um, and, uh, and often many dozen customers, of course, um, there, there's still a lot of debate of whether they're going to get to real scale and whether the industry or problem they're tackling has real scale. Um, probably not as big a problem as cancer is, but we know that probably not as large a financial return as curing or solving something like cancer either. So I guess my response would be, I totally get what both of these articles are contemplating. And we've talked about before, and I believe there's a big need for additional debt participants, uh, you know, in the ecosystem. And, and I really like kind of the point of that article, um, you know, but at the same time, I guess I would say that even the venture capital ecosystem, um, every different fund uh, and fund profile or management team kind of sits somewhere along a spectrum of risk and reward. There are certainly funds that take more risk than we do. Um, I would guess there are funds that take less risks even than we do, especially if they're at gro uh, higher growth stages than we are. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think everything's kind of, uh, you know, lives somewhere along that spectrum. And I think everyone's counting on there being some inefficiencies or this ecosystem would be figured out maybe with an, entirely with debt. Um, and obviously the 
possibility of equity participation from the venture side may not exist. Uh, but all of that being said, um, I think that uh, there has to be a wide spectrum of risk and reward expectations for this ecosystem to uh, work relatively well. But there also has to remain some inefficiency in it, or there will be very little to no transactional volume. So I guess that's kind of my initial point, taking the kind of debate between these two articles head on. Sure. But still, I want to see more investors out there investing in weird stuff. Because it's weird. It's weird. I mean, if, if, if only from the perspective of uh, uh, I'm, I'm easily bored. <laughs> and I want and and if I'm reading stuff, uh, you know, on the internet for um, uh, entertainment and informational purposes, um, I I care much more about the uh, investments in you know weird niche, you know, uh, you know, quote what used to I guess be called sort of like high techno. Oh, this is actually a very interesting like semantic distinction that's been drawn recently. Right, like like what used to be called like semi, uh, uh, sorry, um, high technology, and is now called uh, like quote unquote deep tech, right? Like, yep, yeah. Um, I mean, there is money going into deep tech, but like obviously, there's a different uh, sort of. Uh, it's not like I've I don't have a, a access to like you know the 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 waterfall models and stuff that like. Uh, you know, some of these bigger deep tech investors have, have ever presented to limited partners. But my guess is that they those have a very different sort of uh, time horizon for success and a very different sort of return profile over time. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm sure with a little bit of education uh, to, to limited partners and also, you know, some sort of pre-qualifying uh, criteria for your limited partners, e.g., you know, a certain level of technical savviness, a certain level of, of um, you know, long-term, uh, just like the ability to be a long-term, you know, participant in a market without necessarily needing to get that liquidity incredibly quickly. Um, you know, I don't see a reason why, uh, why, why there there shouldn't be added demand uh, for. Uh, you know, for 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 a financial product, e.g., a venture capital fund that invests in you know newer, weirder, uh, bigger types of swings. So no, I com- I completely agree with that, and I think that there are. Uh, I mean, there certainly are funds that are doing that. Um, and uh, to some extent, uh, although it's not deeper tech, and they're using kind of more of a capital as a moat strategy, which we've talked about before and will talk about again, I mean, that's kind of what SoftBank is doing in a lot of ways, right? They're making a bigger bet, but but a lot of the things that they're doing, while maybe not deeper tech, are saying uh, betting on a different future of the world, whereas... Uh, I think a lot of the things that the fund I work for are betting on are um, a more incremental change. And not that it's right, wrong, or otherwise. I mean, we think that we have a great strategy um, that we're running, uh, and we think that there's financial results that will bear that are and will bear that out. But that being said, I think we're betting on a more incremental change in the world, which I think is what the 
what the Financial Times article maybe is faulting and what the what the uh, Alex Danko article is saying may eventually eat our lunch. Uh, because if you're making bets in SaaS-based businesses, um, other debt-based players may find ways to compete against us over time. Right. And this actually might be a an okay time to transition ever so you know slightly to discussing that Alex Danko article, um, which brings up another fantastic uh, book. I will save everybody the... Um, I'll save everybody the 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 summarization of the the underlying theory, um, but uh, Alex sort of begins with a uh, a discussion of um, shoot, what's her name? Oh no, oh no, the author of Techno- technological revolutions in financial capital, Carlotta Perez. Oh Lord, yes. Oh my God, uh, Graham, I gotta I gotta hang up the hang up the spurs. I can't write about. Uh, Technology innovation and and financial capital without um, <laughs> without remembering the name of the author of the very book that I was trying to reference, right? Um, well, no, but uh, thank goodness that you're going on vacation tomorrow. Oh my! Hey, upset. Ma, Ma, my as he calls himself, long suffering co host uh, <laughs> is uh, is is less than twenty four hours from uh, from being on a plane to uh, beautiful places. Yeah, beautiful places. I'll tell everybody about the beautiful places afterward. Um, actually, no, we're going to do a very quick side uh, side thing before I get back to talking about Carlotta Perez and, and Alex Danko. Graham, do you know why we had to change uh, vacations? We were going to go to one place, and now we're going to another place. Um, uh, I don't. Mm, we were okay. So a uh, little bit of opsec uh, breaking breaking the opsec here. We're going to a small island in in the Pacific Ocean for a week. I'm very excited. We were going to go to a different small island in the Pacific Ocean. However, the small island in the Pacific Ocean that we were going to go to is currently experiencing an outbreak of dengue fever, which, uh, in case you guys are unfamiliar, it's a viral hemorrhagic fever, uh, which uh, is just as entertaining as it sounds. So uh, if you don't bleed, uh, if you don't bleed out, um, or uh, to use a technical term, exsanguinate, um, hmm, you are uh, stuck in bed for about a week, uh, feeling as though you're being skinned alive for about a week, constantly. Now, why is it that you chose not to go there? Because we didn't want to get dengue fever. Ah, good choice. So we went to a place that didn't have a dengue fever outbreak. So he wrote an article uh, fairly recently last week uh, called Debt is Coming uh, to the Venture Capital Industry. Um, summarizes some really great stuff from Carlota Perez's uh, Technological Revolutions in Financial Capital, which, in case you guys have not heard of it or read it, uh, I highly, highly, highly recommend picking up a copy. It is not very thick, and it is very dense, but incredibly informative, and it has lots of charts. Um, and, and you know, using this sort of framework here, uh, sort of, looking at, you know, financial capital and, and productive capital, uh, Alex sort of brings into this question of like, well, where, you know, where, where are, where is the industry, where is the venture industry right now? And where is, um, where, where might it be going? And, you know, because of this, you know, ongoing stabilization of, uh, or, or, you know, in, uh, optimizing the startup business, 
or the startup investment business for predictability and scale um, has in turn uh, created a scenario where, you know, finally um, you can start seeing a, a opportunity for uh, debt type investors to start making investments into uh, startups, uh, which would in turn presumably get them a uh, higher coupon uh, or higher interest rate than they would say certainly investing in U.S. Treasuries and and even investing in large um, sort of corporate uh, corporate bond offerings and stuff like that. Um, and and how there exists this incredibly long tail of of software businesses that can now use this like SaaS model, this recurring revenue model, um, to uh, to generate capital for themselves. Um, or I'm sorry, to raise capital for themselves through uh, through through debt markets as opposed to equity markets, and this is advantageous uh, because, again, because of the you know back to the whole whaling analogy, uh, if you're a venture investor or if you're on a whale ship, you need to go you know nab nab your chunk of the biggest thing out there and hope to you know ride you know ride ride that. Uh, stake in, you know, in into uh, a massive market and uh, and eventually into a really big liquidity event. Um, you know, when you melt the whole thing down and burn it for candles or whatever you you do with your startup equity or whale oil. Um, but uh, you know, like in order for that to happen, you need to have a really big whale or you need to have a really big you know portfolio company. And, you know, there's a much bigger surface area for companies to play in uh, than there is a surface area that's investable for VCs just because, you know, these niches are getting smaller and smaller. So um, I think that's a very interesting angle uh, to to, to look at going forward. Um, And, uh, you know, he also mentions that you know, equity is uh, is is risky. You know, uh, because startups fail, but also you know it's also risky for founders in a in in the other way because if you're really really incredibly successful, you know the most expensive equity you've ever sold is the stuff that you sold probably to your pre seed and seed investors if you exit for you know a, a billion or two dollars. Two dollars? No, two billion dollars. Oh, two billion or, or a billion and two dollars. Get you know, given the liquidation preference, maybe all you get is two dollars, <laughs> as covered in uh, one of our episode. recent uh, prior episodes. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that the point that um, you know, and a lot of founders we're seeing these days are really sensitive to dilution, and I think that you know, I I always encourage them to be, um, you know, to be very sensitive to that dilution. Um, I think that yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting points going on here, um, and I think that the chart, kind of about halfway or or maybe a quarter of the way down in this article, that's talking about um, you know. Uh, FK and PK uh, being coupled in kind of the higher and lower end of the spectrum and there being this unoccupied middle where VCs exist makes a lot of sense to me. I think what's going to happen 
um, you know, is a combination. And, and I think that's responsible for at least, or potentially responsible for at least one side of this is that middle, that inefficient market because of technology, ironically enough, in many cases, probably by venture back technology, that inefficient middle that we venture capitalists rely on, um, to find and source deals is going to shrink. Um, and, or the foxholes that are available for disruption are going to um, mostly be filled. Now, that being said, I think there's, I think as new platform type technologies develop and there's always a next wave of those coming, I don't know because that's not what I'm out there every day looking at. I don't know that I know what the next wave of platform technologies are. I think you get an entirely new landscape of potential kind of smaller, uh, you know, micro opportunities or ecosystem kind of opportunities to defend. Um, but uh, and new businesses will pop up to fill those. Uh, but I really like that chart. And I think that does a really good job of summarizing kind of the way one of the ways in which you can look at venture capital holistically. Um, and but but again, I think it's interesting to think about the way that that opportunity may shrink over over time. I think that's kind of one of the core points that this article is is making. Yeah, I mean, like we can think about this from the perspective of um, so like earlier earlier today, for example, it was announced that uh, Graham, did you hear the news about uh, Snowflake? No, I didn't. Okay, Snowflake is a database company uh, that makes Snowflake DB. And they, today, uh, if my internet would load, because I want to get you the precise number, uh, raised a uh, staggering $479 million at a valuation of $12.4 billion post. Which, uh, Graham, is uh, it's a lot of money. Um Wow, it's wow. a lot of money. It is a lot of money, um, but like you know, you see, I've, I, I've, I've only sort of, well, I've seen this in a lot of places, but for the sake of our, you know, discussion here, and because it's top of mind, um, you know, I've seen a lot of this stuff happening in the, um, in like the database and and like software infrastructure, you know, side of the business, right, like. Uh, you know, you see this now with Snowflake. You've seen this uh, happen similarly in the past with um, with Databricks, uh, which is the maker of uh, Spark and other um, and 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 related, you know, sort of products uh, around uh, uh, what was uh, you know Apache Spark. Wherein, like these companies are are building these like big, you know, data science and analytics sort of tooling platforms and all the rest, and like that to me strikes me as as to that, to your earlier point, Graham, you know, as, as the perfect sort of, um, the, the correct kind of, inef of market inefficient business that requires venture capital in order to achieve the type of scale that it wants to achieve. Um, right. Cause like, like really, you know, are, is, is, uh, is, was Snowflake going to, uh, you know, continue grow. They, they say after this, they want to go public, but, um, you know, were they going to continue growing, uh, at the rate that they have, if they, if they didn't raise, you know, over a billion dollars in venture capital to date? No, I, I, I don't think so. You know, may they have grown into a, you know, uh, 
you know, tens or, or, or hell, even like, you know, a hundred million dollar a year business without quite so much, you know, venture backing, maybe, you know, perhaps it's kind of hard to test a counterfactual, uh, you know, because there is no alternate universe where, you know, Snowflake did not raise over a billion dollars or, or, you know, similar sorts of, uh, stories with Databricks and others. Um, so you're not a, a fan of the infinite universe theory? No, no. First off, Graham, you know, there's, there's, there, you know, I, I, I'll tell you that, uh, that in an infinite universe, there's a version of me that is very excited about the infinite universe theory. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, so I mean, if there, of course, if there, you know, in, in, in given infinite universes, of course, there's a universe that is exactly like our own. But, you know, in which, uh, I don't know, you know, Snowflake's uh, deck uh, totally failed to send and, and they never got the meeting. <laughs> I don't know, right? Um, but, but like, you know, these companies, because they, they built like these big platforms and all the rest, like they needed venture backing in the form of equity in order to, to, to grow, you know, at that hyper, you know, blitz scale that they did. Um, I doubt that they would have been able to attract similar quantities or even, you know, even, even remotely similar quantities of capital to do that kind of, you know, rapid growth, uh, pursue that rapid growth strategy that they wanted to, um, if they were only going to debt markets, unless somebody came up with a like truly like onerous set of terms, um, on, on, on that debt, you know, either through just straight, straight debt or as a sort of a convertible type instrument. Yeah, I, I totally believe that that's true in this instance. Um, but I think that the really interesting point that this article makes, and I've been a long believer in some other strategies outside of venture, admittedly, that I've looked at personally, that what that the value that a business has in a lot of cases certainly is backed by its people. And I would never say anything that minimizes that. But a lot of service-based businesses have a very valuable, um, and even if they're not technically SaaS or recurrent or even reoccurrent or even marketplace-based, um, uh, I think a lot of businesses have a really valuable asset in their book of business. And I I have been a long-standing believer that our current financial uh, debt-based, uh, you know, uh, backers, financial industry currently does a very poor job of valuing that book of business. And so one of the things that's contemplated by by this article that I'm a big fan of, whether they're SaaS businesses or not even, um, although certainly if they are, um, is that the biggest asset of many of these businesses is their book of business. And that's something that while being intangible uh, in the case of technology businesses um, is is really, really something that I'm a big believer in. So... Um, no, it's not intangible. Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, man. It's not intangible. Like, you, you have a... You know, you have code that was written. You have servers that you've rented because, um, you know, nobody's really buying their own, you know, server infrastructure anymore. Everybody's just getting it through like AWS or uh, right. Google, Google Cloud or Azure or whatever. Um, 
you know, so there's real real software that's written, real code that's running on real servers that are being rented from real people that are that have all given their credit card information to uh, <laughs> you know to get billed on some recurring basis. Um, so like right. that and, is and, very and, real. And of course, I agree with that. But I but I, my point is, I think that our current financial ecosystem has a difficult time evaluating what the value of that is and ascribing some asset like or asset based value to it uh, differently than it would say, here's a machine, here's a bunch of inventory. These are tangible things that I can ascribe some value to and I can resell them to someone else. Of course, I agree that that code, even if the existing business shuts down, very likely could be uh, repurposed and used for something else. So it's unlikely that most or all of that work is lost, even if that business fails. I agree with that. Um, but I think in the traditional debt-based banking and underwriting sense of the word, the, what you described would be called intangible assets oh, yeah. because they're not physically tangible. Oh. And I think that a lot of banking and ABL, asset-based lending guys, uh, guys or gals, uh, would look at that and say, I, it's difficult for me to assign some value to this. So, uh, and I believe the contracts of these businesses, service-based or SaaS-based, would be looked at in a relatively similar way. But that being said, if we can additional capital sources to back the predictable growth segments of our businesses that dilute the people who do invest, whether sweat equity as founders or co-founding team members or equity investors. I think it's probably good for everyone if the universe of potential um, uh, uh, investing partners or capital stack partners increases, although it may make an already competitive space in some cases slightly more competitive still. Um, but holding us as venture capitalists, holding our feet even more to the fire uh, is certainly a challenge that that the team I'm lucky enough to be a participant of uh, would welcome every day. Um, I mean, we compete to be in almost every deal uh, that we're in. Uh, we took a pitch from a company today that I think it's very likely if we get more serious about, I can't disclose anything further about it, but if we get serious about doing this deal, we will absolutely have to compete to be the chosen financial partner of this early stage sure. but high growth technology company. Yeah, of course. And I think that's good, not bad. No, And right. I think if they wanted in this round or the next round to bring some debt capital in to further finance growth in a predictable and financial instrument-like way, um, even if we were invested, I would, uh, I, I would welcome that. Again, there'd have to be a real underwriting process. There'd have to be real understanding of the business. Um, but we see a lot of businesses that if we put X dollars into sales and marketing spend, we have a pretty good estimate of the Y dollars over Z period of time that will come out of that. And maybe that's a little bit of a private equity mentality, which is one of the that's things what I was gonna bring up. that this article brings up. Um but we're also still trying to push the envelope at all times and come up with 
uh, A, B, and C business models that are different than the X industry that they're already going after. Um, so I completely agree with the thesis that uh, comes later down in this article that maybe businesses in the future will finance some of their existing predictable lines of revenue um, from uh, from from debt, and then we'll finance new R and D from venture, possibly at the same time. I li- I like that concept. Yeah. No. I mean, well, if there's one, <laughs> yeah. If, if this if this all comes to pass, this is uh, this definitely means one thing, Graham, which is that um, uh, as if they didn't already have you know one of the hardest jobs in the room, uh, startup CFOs are about to have to deal with a lot more complexity. That is definitely true. Yeah, for for the people who are handling financial information from an operational perspective, yeah, this will not make their jobs easier. It will make it more complex and probably substantially more complex, maybe with other regulatory and other kind of reporting burden for for sure. Um, And... At a much earlier stage, you'll be segmenting businesses into different business lines or operating units. Um, you know, th- that's definitely something that I think is true. And that's not a core competence of most startup CFO controller kinds of folks. Um, but again, I, I believe in them uh, to to kind of rise to that challenge or them to uh, recruit people who work in more mature businesses that understand segmentation in that way um, to come to a slightly earlier stage uh, and start looking at those businesses and the way they're financed in that way if that becomes an appropriate model for that. Or, you know, I'll, or and, and again, I think we're... I, I think we're seeing uh, a lot of other businesses forming around that ecosystem. Um, shout out to just one that I've become pretty familiar with called Lighter Capital. Um, they're a revenue-based financing company that loans money against future revenue expectation. And they have a hard and fast rule that, uh, uh, and you could find this, at least you could at one point, I've been to their website recently, but you have to have a greater than 50% gross margin for them. That, that's a hard and fast lending rule. Uh, but if you do, then uh, then that and several other things that could fit certain service-based businesses and generally fit most SaaS or other marketplace businesses, um, you get certain multiples of revenue and you pay back certain multiples of revenue and it looks like debt, but it's really what they call revenue-based financing. And they're not the only group who calls it that. Yeah, or, like Clear, or Clear Bank is another one. They just raised a whole bunch of money for a new, for a new uh, mostly fo- uh, dent, yeah. <laughs> I was about to say denture vet. That's different. That's a, that's a dentist for dogs. Um <laughs> My dog needs its teeth taken out. Oh no! Oh, Whatever no. am I? You gotta go do? call a denture vet. Denture vet. <laughs> Spoonerisms are great. Uh, I quit. Uh, <laughs> Your brain might already be on vacation, dude. Oh my god, I got full. I'm full vacation brain right now. Um, what was I gonna say? I don't know. I think Graham, that might be a good place to 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 wrap this one up. Do you want to? Do you want to uh, uh, cut this and go to the follow on? Yeah, that works. We uh, 
So for those of you listening out there, we've started recording uh, some additional bonus content. We'll uh, we'll have a way for you to find that soon. But we uh, and, we and eventually it- and eventually hopefully pay us for it or or I don't know find other ways to compensate. We'll figure it out. Um, and we call that the only thing we could appropriately think of. Which well, of this course, is, if this is fully vested, yeah. then that is the follow-on. That's right. That's the follow-on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, both episode, uh, both uh, uh, podcast feeds are are currently undersubscribed. Uh, we are taking uh, taking subscriptions for uh, for for a seemingly the uh, there is no limit on this offering, Graham. We'll take as many subscriptions as we can get. Definitely hoping hoping the gross margin goes up substantially. Let's just say. Good lord. All right, I'm hitting I'm hitting stop on this episode. <laughs> oh, uh, if this one's ever hits air, we're uh, we're we're in trouble. <laughs>